from Star Studios in Denison, Texas, this is Coffee with a Sign Painter, a weekly podcast hosted by sign painter Sean Starr that consists of interviews with other sign painters and some of the customers and characters Sean comes across while running his studio. Hello, welcome back to Coffee with a Sign Painter. Um, for those of you that have been uh, listening every week, you know that we are currently in Limerick, Ireland. And um, while we're there for the Elemental Arts Festival um, and the screening of the film Sign Painters, we're also working on a project with the band The Cranberries. Um, while we're there, we're also uh, doing a lot of interviews for the podcast for uh, future episodes that you'll be hearing. Uh, but for right now, uh, I think what we're going to do is, um, don't know how many of you know this, but uh, back in 2007, I co-authored a book called You, Me, and Morrissey with uh, another author named Colin Asari, and um, the book did really well. It ended up... Uh, in 2008 being made an official entrant for the Pulitzer Prize. Didn't win, but that's still pretty cool. Um, so what I thought I would do is um, I've actually had quite a few requests for this, surprisingly, and uh, so what I'm going to do is go ahead and read a chapter from that book, uh, one of my stories in the book, and this story is... Uh, has to do with my dad and how we got started um, doing this kind of work years ago in Texas and uh, some of the things that uh, that led to. So I'm going to go ahead and read the story, The Sanest Days Are Mad, from the book You, Me, and Morrissey, and um, hope you enjoy it. My father was born in 1941 in Cleveland, Ohio, to Ukrainian immigrants. They named him Dale Thomas Staryovsky. He was a large, muscular man that wore a mustache for as long as I can remember. My brother and I referred to him in secret as Stalin. He was a dictator, but he was also a poet, and he resembled Joseph Stalin. My father's favorite pastime was movies. All the years growing up, he was always taking us to the movies. Not just the normal run-of-the-mill movies, but the foreign films and classics also. He had a passion for literature as well. My parents had moved to San Diego in 1967 so my father could pursue his writing career. I was born the following year. My father sold used cars during the day and worked on his book at night. In 1969, my family returned to Cleveland and my father quit writing. Something was published under a pen name, but we never were able to talk about it, and it's now a star family mystery. I asked him the year before he died what the whole story was, and he replied in his stoic Ukrainian manner, I don't want to talk about it. It was the ongoing mystery and enigma that was my father. He had many quirks. My father only drank once a year. He would buy a bottle of vodka and sit down in front of the television on the couch with a glass of ice and a glass of water. An hour later, he would stand up and announce that he was going to bed, and the bottle would sit empty. It was some sort of weird, weird Ukrainianness that none of us ever understood. He would go to bed and be up at the crack of dawn the next day without skipping a beat. He was completely outraged at the presence of condiments at the table. Pickles, relish, mustard, ketchup, 
You name it, if it was a condiment, it was banned from the table. His obsessive nature also broke the locks in the house. The front door locks and the knobs on the stove had to be regularly replaced from his middle-of-the-night trips to check them all. He had a thing about being in his underwear. This is not as charming as it sounds. He was a large man, and he wore white Hanes briefs. He insisted it was his God-given right to wear them around the house whenever he felt like it, and he did. Between my two brothers and my sister, and the revolving door of friends that came through the house, this posed a variety of problems. I remember approaching the house with a friend and asking them to wait outside while I went in to negotiate with my father to put his pants on. I always lost with the speech of how it was his house, his right, and I would have to return defeated to my friend and try to explain why my dad was in his underwear. He was larger than life itself. My brother Sterling had his own underwear quirks. When he was around 16, he decided to go au naturel and stopped wearing underwear altogether. That wouldn't have been that objectionable except for the fact that he felt compelled to tell everyone he came across that he wasn't wearing any. It was creepy, but hilarious. My father had a nobility about him despite his weirdness. What I admired most about him was his moral fiber and a sense of fairness in dealing with people. He started a graphics company in Texas a few years after we moved there. I started working with him when I returned from Florida. My parents were in the West Texas desert town of Sonora when I came home. We traveled all over West Texas custom painting graphics on trucks, airplanes, anything that a cowboy with a big cigar was willing to pay us to paint. I really enjoyed the desert. I joined a conjunto band playing lead guitar. It was all the food and beer we could eat and drink and played every wedding around. I was the only white guy in the whole place and it all somehow made sense. We went into San Antonio one week to catch up on some work there. We were on the south side of town where all of the lowriders cruised on Saturday night. I felt at home. On the way back home one day, I bought a 1972 Ford LTD for next to nothing from a car dealer my dad knew on the south side of town. It was one of the longest cars I had ever seen. I followed my dad in that car all the way back home. The car glided down the highway like a ship on the open sea. I arrived in Sonora and called my brother Sterling outside to see the car. He and his wife Claire were staying at my parents' house. We both walked around the car smiling, both knowing of its unspoken fate. We waited until Saturday when we knew my parents would be out of town for the day. We went out front where the car was parked as soon as they left. Sterling started the process with a golf club through the back window. We turned the boombox on and the project continued through the day as the Smith's first record blared in the background. We broke into our dad's tools and cut the side post of the car with a hacksaw. The metal above the windshield was too thick to cut with a saw, so we cut that section off with a hammer and chisel. The sun was starting to go down, which was a welcome relief from the desert heat we had been working in all day, but it signaled the return of our parents. We cleaned up all of the broken glass and filed the sharp edges off the areas we cut. When my father pulled up, we nervously worked as if we were cutting the lawn or doing something normal. He walked around the car slowly. He admired the cuts as he floated his hand above the topless car. He nodded and tried to maintain the serious look, but a quick grin leaked out. My father regained his composure and said, Where are you putting the roof? You can't leave that here. Yeah, yeah, I said with a smile. Hey, he spouted. His big word was hey. 
When he said it and said it loud, it told you quick that he wasn't playing around. No, no, we know. We'll take care of it, I reassured. Okay, he went inside the house. I looked at Sterling and told him we needed to do something about the roof. We laid it in the back seat, sticking straight into the air, and drove off the main highway. We pulled up next to a barbed wire fence that held a dozen cows and tossed the roof into the field in the moonlight. I went back over ten years later and the roof was still there, rusted, with cows still standing around it. My brother and I would shave the sides of each other's heads and drive through the desert with Claire, flying down the road and listening to the Smiths with those shaved heads and every cowboy and every truck passing by wanting to shoot us dead. There couldn't have been a nobler way to meet our maker. Our father tolerated it all. He was, would occasionally go on a rant, but he understood our plight, I think. My dad and I would leave the house at four in the morning and drive to different towns to do our custom painting. We would show up somewhere that my dad arranged and paint someone's horse trailer or truck or airplane. We stopped at McDonald's one afternoon and the place was packed. My father did his usual routine. He would order a filet of fish and explain to the kid taking his order how crucial it was that no tartar sauce be anywhere on the sandwich. It was a condiment after all. The kid making minimum wage looked unconcerned and I could sense something great in the works. My dad could not handle caffeine the way that some alcoholics couldn't handle their booze. He had finished a huge cup of coffee when we left the house that morning and his blood was pumping full steam. We sat down in the crowded restaurant and my father slowly opened his filet of fish peeking under the bun. I sat in anticipation like watching someone scratching a lotto ticket. The sandwich was slathered with tartar sauce and my dad's face looked horrified, like a human finger had been cut off and placed in a sandwich. Without hesitation, the sandwich flew across the restaurant and stuck to the wall. I almost fell to the floor laughing so hard that soda was fizzing through my nose. My dad went through a series of comments about when you order something a certain way, you expect it to be made a certain way, and on and on. It was greatness. I made eye contact with him and we both smiled knowing that we had probably shocked everyone in the place. Still laughing madly, I looked up again at my dad and noticed something that had escaped my attention up until that very moment and with that I completely lost it. The gut-busting laughter ensued, giving me barely enough strength to point out what was causing this outbreak, my dad's shirt. When we had left in the middle of the night for our job that day, he came out with his shirt inside out and neither of us had noticed the whole time. When he looked down and noticed what I was laughing at, he stood up in front of the already horrified diners and pulled his shirt off and turned it inside out. He stood there looking like a hairy gorilla as he meticulously turned his shirt inside out and put it back on. He sat down and finished his french fries like the last 20 minutes had never happened. I thought I would pee my pants. We walked back to his 1972 Chevy station wagon, complete with wood grain running down the sides. The rear bumper was covered with every color of dripped paint you could imagine. It was the coolest vehicle we could have worked out of. We all eventually moved away from the desert one by one. I always missed the desert. I think I was the only one who did. Over the years after I married Lisa, I could keep coming back to working with my dad. He would open up different shops and sometimes we would work on site again from his car. I learned everything possible about color mixing during that time. I also wanted to know which colors blended best with others my dad would always show me as he worked. He created a work ethic in myself and my brothers that was uncompromising. We worked long hours and rarely took breaks. 
It set the precedent for many all-nighters I would spend in the studio over the years painting until the sun came up. Lisa and I moved back to Texas from Seattle and I was working alongside him again. Things finally felt like they were settling down for us. I scraped enough money together to put down a small deposit on a house. I was the first star male offspring to buy his own house and I was proud of it. I was putting down roots and it appeased Lisa's concerns that we settled down now that her son had been born. I set up my studio in the garage. Months would be spent painting the inside of the house a dozen different bright colors, every wall covered in color. Lisa and I sat on the floor a few nights after we moved in and listened to Strange Ways Here We Come laughing about the way we got married. We had no furniture, but that would change in time. Ian was sleeping in his own room. I felt the universe slowing down for me finally. I started growing bonsai trees. I painted every spare chance I could get. Life was good. One evening, Lisa and I sat there with my parents in a restaurant waiting for our waitress to bring us our food. My father looked strange. His attention was divided. I looked at my mom. She looked back just as concerned. Dad, what's up? You seem weird, I said. I'm fine. I'm fine, he insisted. No, something's up, I said with concern. I pulled my mom aside and told her he needed to see a doctor. He had been complaining for months that his shoulder was hurting, and now this. Sean, you know your father. He hasn't been to a doctor in 30 years. He needs to get checked out, Mom. Well, tell him then. I came back to the table and told my dad he needed to get a checkup. The argument lasted for almost an hour, but I finally talked him into it. We arrived at Methodist Hospital's emergency room and went inside. My father filled out all the required forms and they took him into the back for tests. The doctor came out hours later and said we could come see him. He led us to his room and there my father lay in a gown with tubes in his arm. The doctor started to go over the tests and provided a vague explanation of his condition at best. My mother was not amused. Just tell us what we're dealing with for crying out loud, she said with frustration in her voice. He went on to explain that my dad had some form of cancer and that it would take a lot more tests to determine what he needed. The room sat silent. My father then sat up out of bed and started tearing the tubes out of his arms. Everything turned to chaos as he made his way towards the door. The doctor was yelling for a nurse and my mom was yelling at my dad to get back in bed. My dad was yelling at everyone and made his way into the hall as my mother chased after him. The doctor pulled me aside and told me I needed to talk, to him, talk him into staying. I went into the hall where my mother was talking to him and I told him to go back to bed. I startled myself. This was the first time I'd ever had the nerve to be forceful to him. He looked defeated. His instincts had to be telling him something terrible was in the works. He submitted and walked back into the room. Then they rolled him down the hall for more tests. My mother and I spoke with the doctor some more. He refused to elaborate and just told us that it wasn't good. As my mother and I walked out into the parking lot, I put my arms around her and I felt like I would lose my mind. I shook it off and we got in the car and I drove her home. The next day we showed up at the hospital and the oncologist came in with a stack of papers. My father broke the news. He had terminal cancer and would be dead in a couple of months. He seemed himself again. His sense of humor was back. The doctors explained they had given him an injection to shrink the tumors that were on the front of his brain. We were told that the medication that shrunk the tumors would poison him, so we had to make all of our arrangements today. We took our turns meeting with him alone. My oldest brother, Mitch, a recovering addict, was there. 
He had spent the last year staying with my parents between his relapses, always promising my dad that he was going to kick the drugs for good this time. My dad desperately wanted for it to be true. It took living on the streets a few years later for my brother to move forward at all. It was my turn to meet with my dad. He had me close the door. How does it feel, I asked. How does what feel, he replied. You know, knowing, I inquired. I cried all night, but I think I'm okay with it, he said as I stared at him. The image terrified me. I had never seen my dad cry. I had never seen him in a weak moment. Here he was with tubes everywhere, and this was it. No turning back. He was 53, and he was almost gone. I was only 26. I was just starting to feel settled, just getting my bearings. This could not be. I was not ready. My father asked me to look after my mom, my youngest brother Billy, and my little sister India. I vowed that I would. We made all of the arrangements for which bills needed to be paid and what I needed to do with the business. I came home that night and held Lisa in my arms. Ian ran through the room laughing with a bow and arrow. This was my future. This was the family I needed to invest myself in. Lisa and I laid in our bed that night after Ian went to sleep. I felt it all crashing around me. I could feel the tears welling up. I wanted to cry. I wanted to scream. My body tensed up as it started to take me over. I didn't know what to do. I never cried. I hadn't cried since I was a little boy. Lisa rolled over and looked at me. I can't handle this. I feel like I'm losing my mind, I said as I started to cry. How do you think I feel, she said sharply and rolled over facing away from me. I pulled myself together and shook it off and laid next to her with my arm around her. I felt I had other duties larger than my own now and that I had to stay focused. They sent my dad home the next day and hospice started coming to take care of him. The end was nearing quickly. Sterling and Stacy flew in from San Francisco. Colin and Ann drove down from Dallas and we all spent the evenings at my parents' house reminiscing and making jokes. My dad had gone from 240 pounds of muscle to not more than 100 pounds of defeated bones in a mere matter of weeks. He would scream in pain from his bedroom, stopping whatever conversation we were having. When they came for his body, I had to step into the backyard. I didn't want to see him that way. I didn't want, to be, I didn't want that to be my last memory. The ambulance left. I still think of him as Stalin, big and strong, the Ukrainian nobleman who had the heart of a poet. They were my sanest days, but they were filled with madness. Okay, so there we go. That's uh, The Sanest Days Are Mad from the book Yumi and Morrissey, Subculture Books. Uh, and that's a story about my dad. And it's uh, not exactly the most cheerful thing at the end, but yeah, life isn't always always cheerful. So, uh, But there you go. I thought I'd share that with you guys and um, gives you a little background on... Uh, on why I do what I do and um, so uh, as I stated we are in Ireland this week uh, at the Elemental Arts Festival doing all sorts of fun stuff and um, I also want to uh, uh, thank our Hooli Records for allowing us to um, share some of their music and uh, this is going to be a regular feature every week we started last week and um, we're going to do it again today. So, so today's song is uh, by Santiago Jimenez Jr., who is the younger brother of Flaco Jimenez, who you may have heard of. And as you'll notice, as I mentioned in the story, um, 
when I was a young man, I played in a conjunto band, which is a, a type of music along the, uh, well, it started along the uh, Mexican-American border and um, has developed into something much different now. Um, and this is the song, Aite de Heo in San Antonio. And you'll have to excuse me for my cheesy Spanish. Uh, it's been many years since I have uh, spoken fluently in the language. Um, and this is from the Arhuli Records um, album, They All Played For Us, their 50th anniversary compilation, which is available on iTunes.
Rolls are brought to you by Full City Rooster. Coffee Roasters, makers of the Sign Painters Blend. Coffee that Sean drinks in the studio every day. Now shipping worldwide. FullCityRooster.com with a sign painter hosted by Sean Starr. You can find all sorts of info about the show and sign painting, including previous episodes at our website, seanstar.com. Oh, 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 o